Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my sincerest hope that the reflections that you will hear today on this broadcast will truly touch your heart and in a way show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today to uh, learn our faith together uh, a little bit more. I always know that we're on a learning curve, and uh, I don't think we'll ever learn everything that we need to know. Uh, but uh, I'm hopefully going to share with you um, a lesson or two that you want to know. And uh, everybody wants to know about prayer and how uh, to improve our prayer life. And Fulton Sheen gave many reflections on prayer. And so today he will give a talk titled Persevering Prayer. And uh, again, he, um, again, I want to just say, wrote book after book after book about prayer. And uh, I'll mention it to you later in the show. One of the books that is a collection of Sheen's writings on prayer called Lord Teach Us to Pray. Uh, but still, we'll get to that lesson shortly, and we'll also uh, touch on a catechism lesson on the topic of sin. And so we're going to learn our faith, and uh, again, Fulton Sheen will continue to open our eyes in a beautiful way. And so without further ado, may I give you a reflection from Fulton Sheen on a retreat he gave um, a number of years ago on the topic of persevering prayer. Please enjoy. The subject today is related to prayer and the spiritual life. Now let us examine ourselves. How much time a day do you spend in prayer? Now suppose you subtract to that formal prayers. For example, the office, which belongs to the church for us priests, and mass, which is not a prayer really, but an action. Outside of that, How much do we pray a day? There was a survey made in England in the last few months among Protestant ministers and priests, and the average time was six and a half minutes a day. Now let me ask you a question related to that, particularly to the priests and the nuns. Some of you have made retreats for five years, ten years, fifteen years, twenty, thirty, forty years. Can you think of any practical resolution that you took at the end of retreat that you've ever kept? Just one. That you ever kept for one year or six months. I'm sure that 99% of you will answer, there's no resolution that you took during retreat has been kept. Why not? Because retreats are like health congresses. Speaker after speaker gets up and says, let's be healthy. But there's no concrete, practical rule about it. So today we're going to get down to something nitty-gritty about prayer. 
which is really the whole purpose of this retreat. I only give retreats for one reason, and you will find out what that is in, in a little while. Why is it there's so much apathy among us? Why is such a declension in the spiritual life? When we were ordained, when we were professed, we were inspired by love, and then we sort of leveled off. Leveled off into mediocrity, which is death. No more love, very much like a marriage. The honeymoon, and then after that, not very much of an open declaration of love. As an old New Hampshire farmer sitting on a back porch one evening said to his wife, he said, Sadie, I don't think I've told you in 32 years that I love you. Why is it that we go into this decline, fall away from love, and when the mind leaves, then the body leaves? There's no date, for example, when any priest leaves the church. You cannot fix a date. That's only his body. That's not important. When did his mind leave? When did that break? That was a long time before. St. John tells us in his epistle, they left us because they did not belong to us from the beginning. We have within ourselves an evil principle that we have to fight against. Life is really the sum of forces that resist death. And as we give up physical exercise and the care of the body, so we give up the care of the spirit. And this evil principle operates. The mole, for example, the naturalists tell us, once had eyes to see. But the mole chose to gravel down in the bowels of the earth. Nature, as if seated in judgment, said, very well, if you will not use the talent that has been given you, it shall be taken away. The penalty of neglect. We read in the epistle to the Hebrews, how shall we escape if we neglect? Neglect. We do not lose our souls simply by doing bad things. We lose our souls by omission. So in judgment, thou didst not, thou didst not, thou didst not, thou didst not. The unburied talent. Very often our sins cause a rebound and we get back again. But when we allow this evil principle just to work out, then we become like the crustacea, which is an animal in the mammoth caves of Kentucky. It apparently has eyes to see. But if you run a scalpel across the eye, you find behind it desiccated nerves. It lived in darkness and the talent was taken away. If someone has taken poison, the antidote is brought to him. It doesn't make any difference whether he throws the antidote out of the window or whether he just neglects it. The poison is operating and it will have its effect. And so it is with us. It may not be positive neglect. As a matter of fact, it is not. 
We just fall away. This is the great tragedy, I think, today. You can see people slipping. They do not know it. That's the interesting thing. They do not know it. Perhaps they will not permit themselves to see it. But it is also true that they are unconscious of the fact that they're on the way out. How many, how many priests, for example, that have left will ever come back? How many sisters that are, are giving up all signs of consecration will ever come back to the discipline of the church? They are very much like Samson. Read the story of Samson in the 13th chapter of Judges. Here was a man who was physically endowed by God. You find in the scriptures that the athlete has a gift from God. As artists do and singers do, they do not thank God, but it's a gift. And he had the gift of strength, and he became a Nazarene, which meant that he would not touch wine, he would be a celibate. And he would dedicate himself to God. And the symbol of that, that sign of consecration for a Nazarene uh, was the, the long hair. Some people think that the strength of Samson was in the hair. That had nothing to do with it. With it. it was just like, the, for example, the veil of a nun or the, the collar of a priest. Only a symbol. It was all. And finally he became involved in different ways, and finally his hair was cut off, and he didn't lose his strength simply because the hair was cut off, but that was the end of his consecration, symbolized by this tonsure. And he just wants to do one last act, and he tried to be strong again, and the scripture says, he knew not that the Spirit had left him. He knew it not. And the same thing was said of Saul. He knew not that the Spirit had left him. So we go downgrade in a, in a very easy way. As Virgil said, Facilis Decensus Averno. The road to hell is very slippery. No one, for example, none of us ever take a resolution we're going to be ignorant. We just don't read. None of us ever take a resolution we'll not be holy. We just do not commune with God. So inasmuch, therefore, as this apathy has seized us, and how how it has actually possessed our culture today. Some men die by the sword, others perish in the flames, but most men go down inch by inch in play and little games. And finally we find ourselves at the end of life without any great love. And it is only a, 
a habit, a memory, like an anniversary. Now, what are we going to do about it? You've made retreats. You've had conferences. You read books. But you have not changed. Now, let us begin to change. And in order to change, we're going to recommend something special. Every single day of your life, and this for priests and this for nuns, and to a limited degree to the laity. Mothers with many children, it's not possible, but you could put aside 15 minutes, but I'm not going to speak of that. You make your own application out of what I am speaking about for the priests and nuns. Every single day of your life, without exception, make one continuous holy hour before our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament. Continuous. It may not be done in 15-minute bits. I will give you the reason why later on. The Mass for the priest is not included. It could be included for the nuns and the laity. But the Mass is not included for the priest. He could begin his hour before the Mass and continue it afterwards because the Eucharistic Mass would not be an interruption to a holy hour before the Blessed Sacrament. What is to be done during that hour? I will give some general recommendations later on. But I want to impress upon you the reasons for the holy hour. First of all, we are living in a busy, excited world. A world that is gauged to interruption. So that we have to get the news on the hour. Life is fissioned. Ever since we fissioned the atom, our lives have become split. The result is we hard, find it hard to pray. We look at television. We see psychedelic images. A repetition of images that have no sequence at all. The non sequitur that simply destroys human reason. We have no, no attention span. Being given so much to television and news, we like this excitement, this particular moment, and then another one, another. But our lives are never coordinated. In fact, we're hardly in the possession of ourselves. Hence, we have to have a continuous hour in order that we may... It takes almost 15, 20 minutes to get rid of the world when we come in to pray. The dust of the earth is on us, the spirit of the world. So it takes 15 or 20 minutes to escape before we have inscape. Escape is taken from the world word ex kappa. A kappa is a cloak, and ex kappa is running out of a cloak so you escape, and in kappa is being caught in the cloak. First part, therefore, is almost escape, then inscape. The holy hour is exemplified by the, our Lord meeting the disciples of Emmaus. 
This beautiful story in the Gospel of Luke. It is Sunday afternoon, Easter Sunday afternoon. Here some of the disciples are on their way to Emmaus, a walk of seven miles from Jerusalem, disappointed men, and they meet a stranger. And the stranger speaks to them and says, Why are you so glum? Three times in the course of that description in Luke, the word discussion is used. They were discussing, they were talking, they were debating. Talk, talk, talk. And our Lord said to them, Why are you so glum? They say to him, Are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what has happened? Haven't you read the press? Don't you ever look at TV? Don't you know the latest news? We whom he thought was the Savior of Israel. What Savior? The political Savior. When we lose the spiritual vision, we get into politics. We thought he was going to save Israel. And then our blessed Lord began to unfold to them the Psalms and David, Psalms of David and the prophets. And then finally our Lord said to them, Did you not know that the Son of Man must suffer in order to enter into his glory? Then they recognized him at the breaking of the bread, which is suggestive of the Eucharist, and then they are reluctant to let him go. Now this is prayer life. When we commit to make the holy hour, we meet a stranger. It's hard. The world is with us. We have the news of the world. All discussions are on our back. And then after a while, we pick up our scriptures. We cannot meditate without scriptures. Cannot. We read the scriptures. Then we begin to understand who Christ is. Know you not that the Son of Man must suffer in order to enter into his glory? And then he's revealed to us Eucharistically, and we are reluctant finally to let him go. In making the continuous holy hour, therefore, do not think you can come in without any preparation, I mean without any book, and spend an hour. The hour will bore you. You go to food for table. You go to the table for food, rather, and you have to have something to nourish you. So I have left over in the reading room, fathers, William Barclay. You'll find the books over there on the table. Barclay has about 17 volumes on the scriptures. William Barclay is probably a Presbyterian, professor of scripture at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, a great scriptural scholar. He knows Hebrew, he knows Latin, he knows Greek, he knows history, and he has the Spirit of Christ. And he will take a syncope or a few verses out of scripture, say five lines, ten lines, and then give a commentary on it. And there's always spiritual content. You read other scriptural commentators, you cut the page and ink comes out, not blood. So when you come in to make the holy hour, bring in Barclay. Last week, 
A week ago today, I was talking in Palm Beach, and I went to the into the church before Mass to make the holy hour, and some priest tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, uh, if you don't have a Barclay, here's one. He had carried it with him from Philadelphia. Now, do not say to me, he's not, uh, he's not Catholic. Listen, these men know Scripture better than we do. A Catholic didn't put in that communion rail. Some atheists put in those windows. Some Presbyterian plastered those walls that were using this as a house of God. Sure, you'll find maybe something in it that maybe offends pious ears. But we have some books, too, which offend pious ears. They have no monopoly on them, believe me, today. But I would recommend to you getting Barclay, two volumes of Matthew, one of Mark, one of Luke, and two of John, and then all the rest. You'd have an excellent commentary. Believe me, your congregation would say, Ooh, my, what a preacher. Where did he get his notes? From Bishop Sheen? Did he take his lectures down on tape? No. You found them out yourself in meditation. Believe me, when you spend an hour here meditating on the gospel of the following Sunday, and do that for four or five days a week, when you get up, you're full of love and full of spirit. Then you can preach. You've got power. So this is the first reason for a holy hour. You need continuity of prayer. A second reason for the holy hour, intercession. We are all united to Christ the priest's victim, religious and laity alike. And we have the burden of the world on us. We therefore have to intercede for the world and for sinners. When we put on a chasuble for Mass, there are 600, 800 million Chinese hanging onto that chasuble. All the communists of the world are at the end of our stole. The sick in our parish, those who ask us to pray, and we intercede for them. That's the second reason. The third reason, and the most important of all, the, re the hour. Whenever the word hour is used in Scripture, and it is used seven times in John, you will always find it used in relationship to evil. God has his day. The devil has his hour. Hence our blessed Lord said to his mother, My hour is not yet come. I'll explain that tomorrow when I talk about our blessed lady. Then on another occasion, just a week before our blessed Lord went into his passion, when there was the voice of the Father which some thought was thunder, he said, Shall I pray to be delivered from this hour? When Judas came to betray him, he said, This is your hour, and all you can do is turn out the lights of the world. Hour always means evil. When our blessed Lord, twelve years of age, was in the temple, he said he was about the things of his father, his father's house, his father's business. 
He was under the Father's will until the hour came. When the hour came, he was under man's will. The crucifixion is what men think of Christ. The resurrection is what the Father thinks of him. So the hour, therefore, is associated with evil. And believe me, there's evil in the world. Tomorrow morning I will tell you about the demonic, but not tell you everything. So we are the Lord, we've got to make reparation for the evil of the world. The demonic in the church, the demonic outside of the church. And our blessed Lord therefore asks, can you not watch one hour with me? The only thing he ever asked his disciples to do, and they didn't do it. Three times he came back to see if they were keeping him company. He counted on James because of his steadfastness. He counted on John because of his love. And he counted on Peter because of his loyalty. But they slept. So he's saying to us, Can you not watch one hour with me? Because of the evil in the world and to repair the satanic influence. This is the reason of the hour. This, therefore, is not something arbitrary. This is biblical. I have no reason for ever giving a retreat except to induce the religious and priests to make the holy hour every day. And if, if you do not take this resolution to make the holy hour, then this retreat is a failure. What do I care if you say, oh, sure, his talks are marvelous. He was interesting. He was entertaining. What good does that do? I'm not here on the stage to be a vaudevillian. We've got the interest of Christ and the church at stake, and I know that priests are remade by the hour, and they're making it throughout the country. And if during the holy hour we prayed for those brethren of ours that are about to leave and have left, maybe some of them would come back. If the religious restored it, then they wouldn't, we wouldn't have so many nuns, for example, that want to be identified with the world. This new century into which we're moving is going to be a century that belongs to Marquis de Sade and to the Dostoevsian characters. I know that's putting it in a knobbly kind of way, but it's only for those who understand. And it is not going to be easy. And the Lord is depending upon the few. This, then, is the retreat. And you will hear about it in every single conference. From now on, you will be challenged to do it. And it is remaking the clergy of this country. For many of them are doing it. Some even who are thinking of leaving started it. And then they received the additional grace. So in conclusion, do not make the holy hour on your own and under your own power. Use spiritual literature and not just uh, pious books about virtue. For example, a book on how to be humble. And you get proud that you're humble. 
There's no point in ever meditating about abstract virtues, about faith or hope or charity, any of these things. The only thing we can love is a person. No one ever fell in love with the theorem of geometry. You can't love a syllogism. It's sorry rhetoric for the multitude. How do we acquire virtues? We love Christ. Then when we love Christ, then we become virtuous. This is the center of spirituality. If we began to preach him from our pulpits instead of sociology, politics, and the cheap things of the world, then our people in turn would be reformed. So think about it, for it is a challenge. And it's hard sometimes. About the only time it's hard, really, is when you're on vacation. The less you have to do, the harder it is, because then you put it off. If you were kept very busy, then you know you have to get it in very early. Well, you say, I'm very busy, and I, I don't have time. Well, you have to get up an hour earlier, that's all. Then you get used to that. Then it becomes so automatic, you hardly ever think of the hour. They will not all be good. I've been so tired sometimes, I had to walk up and down the church for an hour to keep awake. Even so, we're dogs outside of the master's door. If he calls us, we're there. There are not five days a year that I can sleep in the daytime. I remember one of them very well. I was on my way to Lourdes from Belgium, and I had two hours in Paris to make the holy hour, and I went to the church of Saint Rock. At two o'clock, and I was tired, and I sat down, and. I woke up at three, right on the dot. And I said to the good Lord, did I make a holy hour? And my angel said, well, that's the way the apostles made their first one. We'll take it. So the point is never to skip it. Never, never, never. Regardless of the difficulty. I gave a retreat once in the diocese where the pastor and the cure didn't speak. Well, they both resolved to make a holy hour, and they'd forgotten during the day, and they went out, opened the church door at 11 o'clock at night, and became friends like Pilate and Herod. But it can be done. And to say that we're busy is the poorest excuse that we can give. Because think of the time that we waste. The secret of getting things done is to know what to leave undone. Time spent on a newspaper, time before television. Waste, waste, waste of precious time. It could be used to make ourselves happy by being close to the Lord, make ourselves effective and powerful. Now I say it is possible to do it. I have not missed a holy hour in 53 years, every single day. So it can be done. I'm not saying they were perfect, many of them were imperfect, but at any rate, 
I heard the blessed Lord saying, Can you not watch an hour? And remember when he went into the garden, Scripture says he went a little farther. That's what we priests and religious have to do. We've got to go a little farther. Every single day of my life, I pray to the good Lord that I will drop dead before the Blessed Sacrament on some Saturday or some feast of Our Lady. I do not know whether or and at 80. I do not know whether the good Lord will answer my prayer. But believe me, after all the hours that I have made, if he doesn't answer my prayer, he's going to be mighty embarrassed when he meets me. You are listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me this morning or this afternoon or this evening, whenever you're listening, uh, to uh, enjoy the wit and wisdom of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. May I recommend the book, The Lord Teach Us to Pray, uh, a book uh, penned by Fulton Sheen with a beautiful collection of his prayers on the Our Father, the Mass, the Holy Hour. Again, a great little anthology, and again, it's called Lord Teach Us to Pray. And it's available wherever fine books are sold. And again, it will be a welcome addition in your own personal library, the book, Lord Teach Us to Pray. All right, we are going to enjoy the catechism lesson now on the topic of sin. So please sit back and relax and enjoy the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Peace be to you. The three previous sacraments discussed for baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist. All of them refer to a life above the physical, namely the participation of the divine life. By baptism we are born to it, by confirmation we grow into it and accept the full responsibilities of union with our Lord. By the Eucharist, and in the Eucharist, our union with him reaches its peak and its ecstasy. Now we come to another sacrament which represents a fall away from that divine life, namely the sacrament of penance or confession. It is a sacrament which refers to the sins that have been committed after baptism. It is the great sacrament of the mercy of God and if we may use the word, it is an indication how, of how very realistic God is. Once we are born to divine life, we should live in it. But practically some fall away, lightly or seriously. God, therefore, in his mercy, has instituted the sacrament by which the sins committed after baptism may be remitted. No human being could ever have thought of this sacrament, for it is something like the resurrection. We rise after we are dead. It is a journey back again to God. It enables us to get rid of infections before they become chronic diseases and epidemics. It is not an unpleasant and necessary sacrament, 
It is not to be viewed merely as a humiliation. It is the inflowing of God's mercy, an opportunity for the increase of the grace of Calvary. It is a medicine for the soul, the healing of our wounds, a homecoming, an undoing of the past, an opportunity to get a fresh start in life, another bath, a kind of secondary baptism, Sometimes a reconciliation is sweeter than an unbroken friendship. And it certainly is true that if we had never sinned, we never could call Christ Savior. It is the sacrament also which restores us again to the fellowship of the Church, to God's community, to his kahal, to his mystical body. But before we can tell you about that sacrament, We must introduce the word sin. George Bernard Shaw once said that the modern man is too busy to think about his sins. Perhaps Shaw should have said that the modern man keeps nervously busy so he will not think about his sins. Every sinner is an escapist, just as Adam was when he hid from God. The sins we're going to talk about now are not original sin, but actual or personal sins. Remember, we've already spoken about original sin, and we said that it was not personal. We are not personally responsible for original sin. It is a sin of human nature. It is ours simply because we are the descendants of Adam. We are involved in it very much like a citizen is involved in a country whose head has declared war. Oh yes, it left us weak. Gave us even a tendency towards sin. But the tendency or the inclination to sin is not sin. As a result of it, it became possible for us to turn sex into lust, thirst into intemperance and alcoholism, hunger into gluttony, and prudence into avarice. Through that sin, we became almost like those who were given the inheritance of a great estate, but with all of its mortgages too. Our nature is spoiled before we received it. That for original sin. Now we come to the sins for which we are personally responsible. They are sometimes called actual sins. Why is sin possible? Because we are free. You can lead a horse to water, but you cannot make it drink. You can tell a man he ought to do something, but in his will he can resist. Sin lies in the abuse of freedom. It has something to do with a wrong or an evil choice. In fact, we never sin without the will. We can take two attitudes toward freedom, both of which are wrong. We can exaggerate human freedom. We can minimize it. We can put too much stress on it and also too little. We can, first of all, exaggerate freedom. We do this 
when we deny that we are the creatures of God and subject to his law. This was the essence of the temptation of the devil to our first parents. He said, you will be likened to gods. In other words, you will not be creatures, you will be creators. We exaggerate freedom when we say, I love myself, my own will. I am my own law. I determine what is right and wrong. I shall treat my neighbor as an inferior, as a plaything for my pleasure, as a means to my profit. I am the end of my own existence. That is the abuse of freedom you find in those who live without God. But on the other hand, sin is possible because we minimize freedom. This comes about when we deny there is any such thing as guilt. We minimize freedom when we say that all guilt is morbidity. It is sickness. It is a psychological complex. Or guilt is just a hangover from religious and family and moral taboos. Those who minimize freedom, of course, always expect to be praised when they are good, but when they do evil, they say, oh no, it really is not my fault. I was under a compulsion. That is a very handy word. It denies responsibility. Nobody is bad. No one is a juvenile delinquent. They are only sick. You get too fat, you can't help it. You are a compulsive eater. You drink too much, you can't help it. You are a compulsive drinker. You steal, you can't help it. You are a compulsive thief. You see behind that word and behind all other escapes, there is the assumption that I am determined. I am determined by environment. I am determined by my grandparents. I am determined by something inside or outside of myself. Now this is serious. I mean this denial of guilt. Indeed, there are some manifestations of guilt that are morbid. But even the morbid manifestations of guilt, such as the psychiatrists deal with, do not necessarily prove that there was no real guilt at the base of it. When Lady Macbeth washed her hands every 15 minutes, we have a morbid manifestation of guilt. But there was real guilt that prompted that morbidity namely the murder of the king in which she was involved. In the past, it was customary for a man to blame someone outside of himself. Economics, politics, bad environment, poverty, society, grade B milk, insufficient playgrounds, 
In all instances, guilt was transferred from the individual outside of himself. One of the new excuses is to say that no, a man is not guilty at all. The fault is not in the stars, but wholly in our unconsciousness. We cannot help being the way we are. Some very serious effects follow from this denial of personal guilt. The aim of it, as you see, is to make everybody nice. The worst sinners are nice people. But by denying sin, they make cure, the cure of sin, impossible. Sin is very serious. But it is more serious to deny sin. If the blind deny that there is any such thing as vision, how shall they ever see? If the deaf deny there is any such thing as hearing, what chance is there of being cured of their deafness? So too by the mere fact that we deny sin, we make the forgiveness of sins impossible. That is why those who very often deny sin become scandal mongers, talebearers, and hypercritics, because they have to project their real guilt outside of themselves to others. And this gives them also a great illusion of goodness. It will be found generally true that the increase of fault-finding is in direct ratio and proportion to the denial of sin. In some persons, sin works like a cancer, undermining and destroying the character for a long time without any visible effects. And when the disease becomes manifest, it has progressed so far that some souls give up hope, which indeed they should not. Then there comes despair. A despair is something that demands the infinite. Animals never despair, simply because they do not know the infinite. Seldom will a man openly revolt against the infinite. And if he has revolted and sinned, and still does not accept the fact, he tries to minimize the gravity of his sin by excuses, just as Cain did. That is why I say modern man has lost the understanding of the very name of sin. He puts the blame on someone else, on his spouse, his work, his friends, on tensions, Sometimes, by ignoring the real guilt that is there, he may become either a psychotic or a neurotic. It is awful when despair takes possession of souls. Then a sinner does not realize that each present sin is adding to thousands of other sins. Traveling at 70 miles an hour in an automobile is already an excessive speed. But if 20 more miles an hour 
are at it, the danger mounts. Unrepented sins beget new sins, and the dizzying total brings despair. Then the soul will say, I'm too far gone. The drunkard becomes afraid of a sober day, because that sober day will make him see his state as he really is. The greater the depression, the more a sinner needs to escape from it through further sins until he cries out with Macbeth in his despair, I had lived a blessed time. For from this instant, there's nothing serious in mortality. All is but toys. Renown and grace is dead. And this despair has another effect, too. It often turns into fanaticism against religion and morality. A man who has fallen away from the spiritual order will hate it. Because religion is a reminder of his guilt. Husbands who are unfaithful to their wives will beat their wives in order to justify themselves. Some souls reach a point where, like Nietzsche, they want to increase evil until all distinction between right and wrong are blotted out. Then they can sin with impunity and say with Nietzsche, Evil, be thou my good. Expediency can now replace morality. Cruelty becomes justice. Lust becomes love. Sin multiplies in such a soul until it becomes the permanent state of Satan. Oh, he's not happy. The Seneca said every guilty person is his own hangman. And the Shakespeare said, Conscience doth make cowards of us all. Now what are we to do in the face of this sin? Continue to deny it? Is it not much better to try to define it and understand it? Thus far, if we are clear, we have indicated that sin is not a manifestation of animal instincts. It is not an interruption of the subconscious. It is not something which happens because we were loved too little by a grandmother or loved too much by a grandfather. It is an act of freedom by which we throw the whole harmonious nature out of joint. It is not just self-interest, because that is good, but it is rather the affirmation of self at all costs. Here we are assuming the very elementary concept of sin, so let us begin with some analogies from the physical and biological order. Sin in general, is disobedience to the law of God. The laws of God are in the physical universe. Suppose someone builds a skyscraper out of plumb. The building will not stand because he refused to respect the law of gravitation. Because he disregarded it, the law of gravitation, as it were, throws the building down. In the broad sense of the word, he sinned against the physical law. Now come to a higher level, common sense. Common sense is also a reflection of the divine law. Suppose I take my fist and drive it through a window pane. 
I am free to do it. But when I do it, I punish myself. My hand is cut and bleeding. I have violated a law, and I see the consequences. Go into the biological order. Why does anything die? It dies because there is the domination of the lower order over the higher order. When do plants die? When the lower order, the chemical order, begins to dominate the plant life. Fire kills a plant. Fire belongs to the lower order. How can an animal die? It can die through the domination of the plant life over the animal life. For example, through poisonous plants. How does the body of man die? By the gradual, very often, the gradual burning away, an oxidation of the animal tissues, and also by lower forms of life getting inside of man and destroying his life. All right, death then in the natural order is the domination of a lower order over a higher order. When does the soul die? Whenever there is the domination of the lower order over the higher order, whenever there is the domination of the ego over the community, of flesh over the spirit, of time over eternity, of the body over the soul, then there is death, and that death we call sin. That is why Scripture equates death in the biological order and sin in the moral order. The wages of sin is death. Sin, therefore, is a deliberate violation of the law of God. If you buy an electric coffee pot, you will find instructions. Putting it in the form of a commandment, the instructions may read, Put not the plug into the electric current when thy pot is empty. But suppose you say, why should anybody tell me what to do? He's violating my constitutional rights. When you say that, you forget that the manufacturer of that coffee pot gave you instructions in order that you might get a perfect use out of it. And when God made us, he gave us certain laws, not in order to destroy our freedom, but in order that we might perfect ourselves. And when we violate those laws, we hurt ourselves. We break a relationship. That is why in the parable of the prodigal son, the father said to the prodigal, he was dead. Now he is alive. What then is sin for the Christian? It is the breaking of a personal relationship. For those who are in the state of grace, it is a kind of crucifixion. It is the wounding and the hurting of the one we love. Why, therefore, are we sorry for our sins? Not because we have broken a contract, not just because we've broken a law, but because we have hurt someone that we love. And it is only when we discover God and above all his mercy in Christ that we begin to understand sin fully. In other words, it takes love in order to make us understand sin. That seems strange, but it is true. And regardless of how great the sin is, there is always mercy. To be a sinner is our distress.
but to know that we are a sinner is our hope. And the hope is the sacrament of penance. God You are listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today for this time of reflection from Archbishop Sheen. He walked us through a catechism lesson on sin, and may I recommend that you purchase the book, Victory Over Vice and the Seven Virtues, and it's available on the Amazon network in Australia, the United States, the United Kingdom, uh, wherever fine books are sold, but a beautiful two-volume set of Sheen's best works on understanding sin and practicing virtue. So it is the seven virtues and the victory over vice uh, book that is available. Uh, Again, uh, a great resource to have in your own personal library. And there's the book I mentioned earlier called Lord Teach Us to Pray, an anthology, a collection of Sheen's writings on prayer, the Our Father, the Mass, and of course the Holy Hour, one of his uh, just uh, finest teachings of how we are to pray an hour each day with our Blessed Lord. Now, if you can't remember everything I said, uh, please visit our website, uh, bishopsheentoday.com, because we need Bishop Sheen today. So at bishopsheentoday.com, you'll find hundreds of videos, audio recordings, and a great selection of the books uh, penned by the Venerable Archbishop Sheen. So, again, that site is bishopsheentoday.com. My dear friends, I hope to be with you next week, and until that time, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, and may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you.